besides the screen you spent most of your time staring at this week, chances are you are also captivated by a big screen video installation. From billboards to scoreboards, we inform and entertain audiences with our big screen solutions. Visit bigscreenvideo.com.au to see how BSV can bring your space to life. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My name is Tim McBell and welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When you stop and think of the truly inspiring West Australians, many would think of my next guest, a pioneer in her field of medicine. She became a household name, unfortunately, during a time of crisis, a crisis that is about to mark its 20-year anniversary. The bombs that shook Bali claimed 202 lives, including 88 Australians. Many of the injured found themselves in Perth needing emergency burns treatment, and they were fortunate to have the skills of Professor Fiona Wood there waiting for them. Her career, though, has been about much more than that one terrible episode. She's been an innovator uh, in burns and reconstructive treatment. She heads the Fiona Wood Foundation. She's been an Australian of the Year, and she's a mum to six kids. Her life story has just been laid out in a new book called Under Her Skin. But for the next hour or so, uh, I'm going to try to get under hers a little bit. Professor Fiona Wood, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, 20 years. Can you believe it? Um, I'm sure there are people who feel that every day. They still walk around with the the horrible memories uh, and the physical scars from that terrible time in Bali. Uh, But 20 years, does it feel like 20 years to you? It's like everything, isn't it? Sometimes you think, oh, it's gone in a flash, and other times it's like, whoa, that's a long time. And a lot has happened, and, you know, we've been able to do a lot. And so I think time is all about how how much energy you put into it a bit as well, isn't it? But certainly at 20 years on, you just look back at that sort of waste of life and that's that that suffering and and those that still do you know so it's it's sobering that's for sure do you remember where you were uh, when you got that call that people were coming your way that this shocking thing had happened in bali and that you may be busy for quite a while from here on yes i mean i was at home getting ready to go to a wedding at king's park and uh vidge and prayer uh, our plastics registrar at the time and his wife who's an anaesthetist were actually over in Bali, and uh, they had contacted us because they were in Sengala Hospital, so we knew very early on that Sunday morning that there was a big, uh, a big problem, and that we our skills would be needed. And so, were you ready? Did you feel like you were ready for what you were about to do? I think that's a really interesting question because I think as the world watched how we responded, not just here in Western Australia, but across the whole of the country, uh, we were prepared. Yes, we had. Uh, done a whole lot of exercises and planning and and it's interesting to reflect on how that all started with the CEO of Woodside in the 1990s, late 90s, contacting us and asking how we would respond if there was an explosion on the Northwest Shelf and and we worked collaboratively and they funded, Woodside that is, funded the whole development of uh, uh, Osborne plan which went uh, across the whole country. We were collaborated with the, you know, the Commonwealth has brought the states together, the Australian New Zealand Burns Association, all those sort of dedicated multidisciplinary teams across the country, and with the Defence Force, etc. So we put together a very robust plan, 
uh, Woodside funded an exercise called Exercise Icarus, and we all flew around in helicopters and did all sorts of things and learned how the plan could work and could work better, which was more the point. And then we put that plan to the Health Minister's Advisory Council in July of 2002, and they accepted uh, the recommendations that we had put forward in August. Uh, and in part of that was another planned exercise. Uh, so we would expand the exercise across the country, but we never did that because, of course, we did it for real uh, in October. And so, yes, our education and training was such that that's what we were trained for, but... I felt very fortunate that we'd had the experience and uh, and that that sort of fort, uh, good fortune to work with Woodside uh, in the years preceding, so that we had got very robust systems in place. Yeah, amazing timing in hindsight. Mm. Um, October 12, two thousand and two, wasn't far away uh, from that period you're talking about. Um, when October 12 comes up uh, on the calendar this year, Fiona, and, and it's 20 years, and a lot of people will be reflecting on that time, what are the standout memories for you that will occupy your mind on October 12? I think it's it's interesting uh, because, you know, on one hand, I feel that profound loss and and that grief for all those who suffered so badly and continue to do so. But on the other hand... It was a real privilege to work at that time uh, when everybody's pulling together and we were able to do an extraordinary amount of work at that time to treat everybody as if they were here as individuals. And uh, three weeks after the sort of 12th of October, one of my colleagues, Ian Goller, who's a paediatric burn, uh, burn surgeon at the time, uh, said, we've lived through something special here. You know, where everybody, the whole community has been behind us. The whole community is supportive of what we've been doing. And it was a unique period of time in my life. In terms of, uh, you know, being on the wards themselves, can, can you take us inside uh, the Burns unit? I mean, what was it like? Was it just, was it absolute chaos? Was it quiet? I mean, you would have had, um, you know, sections of the media camped outside as well, uh, loved ones, relatives. Um, everyone was sort of focused, um, you know, for, for quite a lot of that period after October 12 on uh, you and your work and your team. I mean, what was it like inside that uh, that pressure cooker? Well, the Burns unit was, was designed to uh, for serial expansion, if you like, to, to accommodate such a... a uh, situation. Our nine beds uh, expanded it to, into another four beds of plastic surgery and so on. We opened the doors and so we spread along uh, the corridor and then we isolated areas for the media, for loved ones and the same in the intensive care unit. We isolated the patients from the rest of the, of the patients and in the operating theatre we used specific operating theatres isolated from the rest of the, uh, the work that was going on. And so uh, part, as part of the planning we established all the cordoned off uh, the areas and in areas where we were able to look after people who were waiting uh, whilst their loved ones were in surgery uh, and while they were having dressings and physio, etc., and so and then we started putting people uh, together. Like the four German boys were in one room together, and they were always playing cards and having a good time as as they recovered, <laughs> you know. And and a lot of them were young, like they were young folks, and you know. So there was a fair bit of banter as people started to recover. So yes, it was quiet to begin with, a level of tension in the air. But as as the days rolled by and people started to 
they had that relief on their face that they'd arrived and they got here. And then uh, the days, as I say, they, they're getting better and better. And, you know, they're sort of understanding that they are going to come through this. And so then the banter starts uh, to increase. And so then, you know, mm. yeah, yeah, we're on the road. We're, we're on the road to the to the finish line though it's not always straight road that's for sure it's a bit of a roller coaster mm. with burn injury uh, but they uh, there was the that that sort of feel of collegiality is the word is it you know that they everybody we were all in it together you know, the patients the teams the our team had expanded of course uh, and so that feeling that yeah we were all in this together was very strong yeah We've been certainly hearing that phrase a lot lately. Yes, yes. Well, it was funny. You genuinely uh, meant yeah. it and felt it back then, um, Fiona. Obviously, um, you know it was a, a massive success. The work that you were able to do there um, post uh, the the bombings, but the unfortunate reality is that not everyone makes it. How do you how do you deal with those losses along the way? How do you price them? As a surgeon, I think you know, we interrogate very aggressively uh, uh, the situations where our patients don't survive. And over the years, there are those who 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 don't. It's become it's really very obvious that the injury is overwhelming, and you know, they will succumb within twenty four forty eight hours. And then there's the uh, those who we will try absolutely have everything a hundred percent full on. But over the days, it becomes apparent that they haven't got the capacity to respond to this enormous injury. And so uh, the, they succumb at about around a week. And then the thir- another third of our patients in this space will survive some months and then succumb usually to overwhelming infection. And, and that was the pattern that we had in Bali, post-Bali. We had a patient who died within... You know, the couple, first couple of days, one at the end of the week, and then 56 days. And uh, learning all the time to make sure that we can reduce that suffering in the future is certainly mm. the way I've coped over the years. It's always trying to learn to be to somehow yeah. do better next time. Just before we leave uh, Bali um, for, for a moment and talk about other things, Fiona, um, if Bali happened today, would the response and your response be massively different to what we saw in 2002? I don't think so. I think we have a level of capacity across this whole country. I think we have a, uh, you know, that's, that you know, we can respond. I think you know, we've demonstrated that uh, throughout COVID. I think, yes, there's been an element of uh, t- butting up into that space of, of being overwhelmed in that pandemic sense. But uh, certainly I think we have got the capacity to respond and uh, we've got the technology and the know-how. So I firmly believe that what you do in a disaster is what you do every day. You just need the extra hands, the extra, uh, the, the extra bodies. And so we have surge capacity, body systems, basic trainings, and all those things in place. So yes, I think we we would be able to respond. Fiona, we're going to take a break now. After that, though, I really want to get into your early years from the north of England, 
uh, in a relatively small town in a fifth generation coal mining family. How on earth did your story start there and continue here? So there's a lot to fill in. Fiona Wood is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are with Professor Fiona Wood, National Living Treasure. Uh, she's just got a new book that's uh, that's come out called Under Her Skin. But uh, we have a, an opportunity at the moment uh, to find out a little bit more about Fiona Wood's life uh, in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Fiona, you're from the north of England, from uh, the Yorkshire area, in a family uh, of fifth-generation coal miners. <laughs> it almost sounds something like, you know, out of a Dickens novel or something, doesn't it? But um, tell me, what do you remember of your early years in England? Well, uh, it's cold <laughs> in the north of England, uh, getting dressed in bed because it was too cold to get out. I think it it was at the time when the opportunity for education was really building, I think. So it's not so Dickensian as it could have been. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that opportunity for education was key. Uh, Mum and Dad had left school as young teenagers and, uh, you know, that 13, 14 age and got into the workforce. And so they were very focused that we would get an education. And, uh, you know, the, the phrase was, the mantra was, you get up, uh, yeah, education will give you the choice to get up in the morning and enjoy some what you do. And, you know, my dad didn't enjoy going down the coal mine, that's for sure. And so getting up in the morning and, in, and doing a job that you enjoy was really the focus. And in order to do that, you had to work hard. And, and as I say, education gave you the choice. And so my life really changed when I went to a Quaker school at 13. And that was in the a nearby village uh, that we subsequently moved to uh, because my mother got a job at the school. And uh, it, as I say, it was life changing. It gave me the opportunity to go through to year 12 and on to university. I was accelerated through school. And so I, uh, I really uh, engaged in, that ho- in the whole the whole experience, to be perfectly honest, and as a, as a young teenager, you're so influ- you know influenced by what's going on around you, aren't you? You know, and and the the Quakers were very very community minded, very community spirited. There was a lot of community service as part of what we were doing at school, and uh, the school motto was "Non sibi sed omnibus," not for yourself but for others, and so it certainly left a mark. You found yourself uh, gravitating towards uh, you know plastic surgery, particularly. Uh, working with cleft palate and conditions like that. Of all of the the many and wide varieties of, of specialised medicine you could go into, why did that grab your interest? Well, right from the word go, as, as I as I've kicked in at med school, I was going to be a surgeon and then I was looking around and I did a B-med sci in neuroanatomy, uh, sort of brain anatomy and anthropology and how the brain developed with our bodies developing into you know, from four legs to two legs and, and all that sort of thing. And so I was interested in the brain and I thought, oh, is that space? But And then I, I got the opportunity to do research with the plastic surgeons doing anatomical dissections in order to understand how we could move pieces of tissue so that we, under the microscope, you can reattach that tissue. And so by doing the anatomical dissections for them, I became you know, at the very bottom rung of the research team and I was able to go into theatre and, and watch what they were doing. And plastic surgery is very creative. creative. It's like problem solving on the go. And, and there's, you've got all these different techniques that are being developed all the time. And, and so how do they all come together to give the best 
possible reconstruction for that person's trauma, cancer, congenital defect or, or, or burn injury. And so that's how I got sort of sucked into that. And and certainly um, the children and some of the, like the clefts and some of those uh, congenital problems was a, a real interest for, for a very long time. Still is, actually. I think it's fascinating how we can... Uh, rebuild people in those circumstances. And and tell us about the skin. Why is the skin so intriguing to you? Oh, I think it's yeah. I think it's part of the nervous system. You know, it, it does so many things. It keeps us, you know, it controls our temperature, and it's clearly uh, involved in our emotional responses because we blush and all. You know, it's, it's protective from the sunlight. It's a barrier for bacteria, evaporative water loss. You know, I could go on. I could talk about skin till you turn to dust. You know, because and, <laughs> and I think understanding its multiple functions is really important when you're trying to rebuild it and understanding how complex the organ is and certainly out of necessity sometimes we we think of it in a simplistic layer like a an outerproof water layer and a tough inner layer and if we can fix that then that's good enough but that's never good enough what's good enough is the regeneration the skin of that person's body site of that at uh, that time and so i think you know it, the the first thing i realized was the scarring can be so extreme and the scarring isn't just what it looks like it's how it feels how it moves and you know we we talk about the physical scar absolutely but the psychological scar how that's impact uh, you know in the mental health space with that person and changes their function not just physically but mentally and then you th we've done research more recently and how burn injury particularly and trauma can influence the way people respond to other uh, other circumstances subsequently many years afterwards so there's a scar in the physiology on the inside of of folks and trying to unravel all that so that we could treat mm. it better be, has become clearly uh, the passion humans it seems I'm, i don't know if i'm getting overly philosophical here and perhaps uh, erroneously but we seem to have, we have an interesting relationship with our skin don't we we want to uh, we want to pierce it, we want to tattoo it, we want to morph it into, you know, something that makes us look younger. Some people burn it uh, intentionally by leaving ourselves out in the sun too much. Do you sometimes see the way people interact with their own skin, this only this only skin that we have, and just sort of shake your head and wonder what, what we're doing with it? Well, it's so, I mean, I think I've been around, I've been a doctor over 40 years now, you know, I've been around the traps long enough to know that uh, there's, your, your decisions are yours. And what, <laughs> you know, and what I do is I bring to the table the capacity to help in whatever way I can, no judgment, yeah, because... Uh, Everybody is influenced by their genes and their environment and make decisions. And so, so some, some the tattooing that we see these days is just leaves me like cold. You know, it's like <laughs> why? Yeah, uh, but you know, it's uh, clearly very popular. So I, maybe it's me that's missing something. <laughs> I'm guessing that you haven't got any tattoos or piercings in Fiona. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I've got. I, I'm quite fond of pearl earrings, <laughs> but that's about as far as it goes. Um, what about your uh, your children? Dare I ask? Have they come to you and said, "Mum, I'm, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo"? No, no, my my kids are clean skins. They wouldn't. They yeah. wouldn't dare. I think it'd be interesting. And I've, I've got a, my, one of my nephews plays professional rugby league, and he he stands out on the pitch because he's a clean skin. Yeah, because he has. And, and he goes, "Oh, I'm too wussy to get the needles." <laughs> <laughs> and you would back him on that hundred yes. percent. I'm sure. <laughs> um, just speaking of sporting prowess, there has always been this uh, cute story 
that goes within your story, Fiona, about your Olympic aspirations as an athlete, as a child. But we've spoken about this before, and it, I mean, it's a nice story, but you've sort of told me that it was it was never really a reality. That story has has stayed with you, though, hasn't it? I know. You go, be careful what you say, haven't you? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut as well, but that didn't stick. Uh, um, so I think yeah, I was. I'm very. Uh, focused on sport as part of, from, from a whole societal perspective. I think there's, it's a fundamental part of what we we should use to in our wellness and you know health uh, paradigm and all. Uh, but certainly as a kid, I used to, I was inspired by a couple of women who were much older than me, but coached me, uh, Val Wilde and uh, Dorothy Hyman, and they'd both been to the Olympics. They'd got on an aeroplane, left the mining village, and got to the Olympics in Mexico and Tokyo, actually. And so that was inspiring to see that these young women had done that as uh, I was a kid. And so I think, now, yes, I want to, wow, wouldn't it be amazing? Absolutely. Was I good enough? Absolutely not, you know? So you've got to to be realistic here and there. Tell us what brought you to Australia, because obviously you started your career over in the UK. At what point did you decide, well, I'm going to move to the other side of the world and continue there? I think that's, um, I gave that, Probably very not the thought I should have. I uh, I was doing general surgical fellowship exams, and I met a West Australian, and I'd known him three weeks when we decided to get married. We got married the first weekend. We both had off our rosters, which was <laughs> ten weeks later. And that's thirty-seven years ago now. And and he said, uh, "You marry me, you live in Perth, and that's not Scotland, and it's non-negotiable." And I remember wow. at the time thinking, "Ah, oh, yeah, whatever." And <laughs> uh, because at the time we were both very in involved in the English training system, but he was right. You know, two years later, when I. I had my eldest boy and, and the little five-month-old, five-week-old five babe. We did come because it was non-negotiable. And so in November 87, we, we landed here. And uh, I remember when his uh, prof house, prof Tony house, said, uh, contacted Tony, said, it's about time you came home and, and carried your training on here. He said, well, I said it was non-negotiable. I sort of shrugged and thought, okay, give it a go. And, yeah. and that was a, the, with the insight of a gnat. I found myself <laughs> here, and and I'd have to say, I still, I mean, I was in the water this morning at City Beach, and I just still think it, yeah, how blessed I am to have found myself in such an amazing place. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what life might have been like oh, had you not followed that instruction or, uh, or not met in the first place? <laughs> Absolutely. It's just, it, it's weird, isn't it? That sort of sliding doors moments in your life. And yeah, it's, uh, I'm just very grateful for many things. I mean, that, that's trivial saying I love living by the beach and because I've been very supported in the whole community in Western Australia. But, you know, I've, yeah, I've, uh, uh, met and married Tony. We've got uh, six amazing kids, and yeah, I just think I am just so blessed. And, and lived an amazing life here, which we're going to get into in more detail right after we take a break, Fiona. This is Inspiring Stories. Professor Fiona Wood is our special guest. Back with more, more of her story after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, We have an Australian of the Year as our special guest in this episode. Uh, And six years running, she was voted Australia's most trusted person. 
<laughs> Professor Fiona Wood, I can see you cringe when I say that. Most trusted person. How did you go taking that award on? Oh, I, I, I mean, it's not something I was asked about, that's for sure. It was the Reader's <laughs> Digest. Uh, but I think it, it was like one of the more random things that's happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what happened on the seventh year? Were you not trustworthy well, anymore? I think they stopped doing it. I think it got boring. <laughs> Um, look, one of the one of the things that was happening um, in your life around about the time that you were uh, awarded the Australian of the Year and most trusted and, and count, countless other awards as well, there, there are so many, uh, was when people first got to know this spray-on skin concept that you're a part mm -hmm. of. I mean, it sounds simple enough. You know, for my non-medical mind, you know, oh, skin cells in a can, you spray them on, bingo, there you go. But obviously there's... A lot, lot more to it than yeah. that. How does spray on skin work? Well, there is. It's not in a can either. It's on a syringe. No. It, so it's much more medical. Yeah. yeah? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but the story for me starts in the 80s as a young doctor when I was in England watching uh, the later, the sort of technology where people was trying to take a piece of skin from a non-injured area and grow a skin sheet uh, because we were skin grafters and so sheets seemed a reasonable way to go. And so... Th that's where the story starts for me is uh, the, the technology was first used in Boston. It come out of Mass General, you know, the Mass General, Harvard, all those, the guy, the very clever fellows over there. And so uh, I heard on the radio in 1990 when I was here as a young uh, trainee that Joanne Padlanetsky and Prof John Masterton had been from Melbourne, from Monash, because they're scientists and the uh, prof was the head of the Burn, Victoria Burns unit, and they'd gone to Boston, learned how to do it, and brought this technology back. And so we were able to engage with Melbourne, send skin over there. And after the first few patients, it became really obvious that the, the uh, to me that there was a huge potential. And I was processing the skin as it was coming back from uh, Melbourne in the bone marrow laboratories, which was in the basement of Royal Perth Hospital because that was where the environment was appropriate to harvest cells in a very clean and, and uh, sterile environment. And so that's when I met Marie Stoner. We got our heads together and we figured that, you know, we could do all, we could do it differently, we could do it faster. And, you know, to grow a skin cell sheet in those days, and many places around the world still do that, use that technology, it takes three weeks. And so we put together a, a grant and we applied for Telethon, funding and so all those mums and dads and telethon uh, in 1993 uh, gave us the funds to start the laboratory and we uh, uh, we cleared out a store cupboard on Hay Street at PMH and there's a picture yeah. of Marie and I just outside where the lab was when we built it and of course the hospital's been uh, pulled yeah, down all now, gone. all gone and uh, so we worked out how to grow the sheets in 10 days and then we were experimenting and understanding that yeah the sheets uh, were hard to use and to integrate, and so they kind of blistered off and caused a bit of, you know, painful sores and things. And where they you got that uh, painful sore took longer to heal, so the scar was worse. But then we saw that when the the sheets were immature, paradoxically they did better. And we started exploring this to the point where we harvested the cells in the laboratory when they were still in suspension before they connected to each other to make a sheet. And when, then we sort of thought, well, we've got this soup. How do we get this kind of soup on? And we, we made blisters with dressings, and it was all very, you know, we're trying to work out how to keep this, uh, 
get the fluid on that would contain the cells onto the surface. And one of us just said, oh, we must, we should spray this on. We're not sure which one, but we sort of disappeared down Rockaby Road to the art store, the pharmacy, to the anaesthetic trolley in the hospital. And we got every way we could spray. And we did a lot of experiments with different spraying, airbrushing and all that. And we found a nozzle that was on an Italian mouth freshener and we can clip that on a five mil syringe. And it's got the right internal workings. It's got vortex in an aperture that as you push the fluid through, the cell 90% plus viability coming through the system and the cells are functional. So we'd that's the nozzle that's still used around the world. It comes from a Is that uh, right? Uh, yeah, comes from, an Italian mouthwash product. Yes. And so but we don't have the mouthwash anymore. <laughs> we just get the nozzles. <laughs> Uh, and so then we thought, well, what about taking the basic elements of the tissue culture lab actually to the bedside? And so what we did was we got the key elements and we put it in a box and we, we ended up building and manufacturing a medical device, a point-of-care medical device, which is called Resell. And so well, we put the skin in, in the device, in the enzyme, and it takes about 30 minutes and we can spray the skin cells directly back on. So it, we've taken the laboratory to the bedside and actually it's given us the flexibility. So we use it in association with salvaging in the burn wound uh, so we can resurface if we can keep parts of the skin there. And then we use it with traditional grafts and with different scaffolds. So it's part of uh, our toolbox of what we use. And so it's part, it's been... Since 1995, 96, it's, it's been part of what we do. So when it came to Bali and the window to our world opened, people said, oh, you're doing things differently. Uh, it, yes, but not today. We've been doing this for some years. And so yeah. it was part of our journey. Can I ask what might be a really dumb question? But, but the cells themselves that you're cultivating... Uh, where have they come from? Oh, from my apologies. That come from an area of you that's not injured, as close as possibly okay. matched from the safe, so from the so person, from you to you. Yes. So if you, you if your face is burnt or injured, we would take it from behind your ear. So it's the closest sight match. We could uh, take from the sole of the foot to put on the palm of the hand, that kind of thing. But most frequently, we take it from the bottom or the back of the thigh, uh, and that will go onto arms, legs, and torso. So the yeah, skin, right. I mean, skin's different over the whole body surface, isn't it? And it retains yeah. the characteristics of the site of origin. So you have to match. And the, using the resell gives you opportunity to match it closer than we can with traditional techniques. So using someone else's um, skin cells to then treat your own wound, it just, it just wouldn't take? Well, the, the, there's, in some circumstances, you can do it temporarily uh, to buy you time. So we sometimes use what we call allograft, but we, we don't uh, use that here, but that is used uh, around in some places. And it just buys you time, but it will be rejected and it will come off. And so, yeah. and then you have to graft secondarily. We would use uh, different uh, sort of scaffolds uh, instead of that sort of technology. Uh, being part of, of something like uh, Spray on Skin, uh, Fiona, in, in terms of the, the, the moments that make you really proud throughout your career, is this it? Well, I think it's interesting because I look at the kit and it's, you know, it's got plastic molding, electronics, enzyme, it's biologic because it's got enzyme in it. It's, you know, it's all the, all the forceps, the, uh, the, the nozzle, the syringes. So it's a real, like, a little sort of lab in a box. And I look at that and I think, how did we do that? 
<laughs> Marie, we, we, I was at my place not that long. How did we do that? But, you know, we were, we were passionate and we were driven and we did. And I learned a lot along the way. But it's just like uh, this week we've been doing a lot of experiments with a robotic 3D printer. So what we're trying to do now is the journey continues. What we're trying to do now is not just deliver the skin cells of you back to you, so from a non-injured area into the wound area, but we're trying to uh, spray on the framework so that when the cells get in there, then they, they start to grow and st grow into new skin. And so we've, we're in the lab working really hard on this at the moment, and we're using different printers and different bio-inks to try and figure out what, where the sweet spot is, which is exciting because that gives us the opportunity not just to uh, resurface the skin, but to build the whole construct. Wow. So you, you're printing out the, the scaffolding and, and effectively sheets of skin well, out of a printer. Well, we now, want... If I can put it that crudely. Well, some people do the out, sheets of skin out of the printer in the lab, but what we're trying to do is actually directly onto the body. Right. And so we, we instead of having a sheet, which you've got to surgically fix, we'll print into all those nooks and crannies of the wound and it will flow into the wound. To, for the to the correct shape, three dimensional shape. I mean, we we're, we're not there yet. Lots of work to do, but we're making a lot of progress. But it's on the horizon. Yeah. Have you have you been someone who's uh, interested in in science fiction over the years? Yes. Fiona, and yeah. those moments where science fiction kind of then intersects with reality. Yeah, I think it's fascinating how some uh, sci-fi writers can. Uh, how did they think of that? You know. So yeah. no, I think it's I I, I love sci-fi, uh, and I often say that. Luke Skywalker gets blown away by the stormtroopers and they put him in a back to tank and he regenerates. I just want a back to tank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, your movie experience is probably quite different to some of, <laughs> some of the others then. So what's what's next uh, on the horizon? What's sort of the next holy grail well, we've for got, you then in Burns treatment? Well, I think there's an awful lot going on at the moment. And we've got uh, one of our the grants, we've got an HMRC grant, which is our major competitive granting bodies, is to look at how we can use transcranial magnetic stimulation. That basically means we're putting magnets uh, and stimulating the brain so we can stimulate brain plasticity to improve outcome. And so what we're doing is, we've, based on previous work, we've seen that people who have a more plastic brain can improve quicker. So, And this techniques are used in stroke rehabilitation. It's used in depression now. And so now we... We're seeing if we can explore that to drive an improved outcome, which is it links with all our exercise program and you know up and you know, resistance exercise and, and a whole raft of work that we've done around that space that you never stay still, and visualization with a mirror box where you put your injured hand in a box and you move your good hand in a mirror and your brain thinks both hands are normal. You know it's. That, that sort of neurological interface work is something we're really driving. We're also driving something called the eye knife, which is an intelligent knife that will give us information of the chemistry, the molecules in the skin as we're cutting through it. And you've had to do all of this and continue to do all of this while balancing uh, lots of other things uh, in your life as well, namely being uh, a mum to six, Fiona, which I'll get you to talk more about right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Professor Fiona Wood is our guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hey! 
You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is the very inspiring Professor Fiona Woods, Burns Treatment Pioneer here in Western Australia, and her skills have been replicated right around the world. Um, Fiona, we've talked already about some of the extraordinary career highlights for you. Um, you're also a mum to six. Just from my vantage point, I'm, I'm guessing you're a very, very busy lady. It was funny. I was at a, a function a few weeks ago with my brother, who's a professor of orthopedics, and uh, we were talking to medical students about careers in surgery. And when I was asked this question, he jumped up. He said, I'm answering this. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> <laughs> and he said this, it's no surprise that two of her boys ended up doing a spell in the military. They were kind of used to it. <laughs> and so I got a lot of razzing. But, yeah, there was a, a military, like, organisation is important, keeping them busy was important uh you know and uh, working working together so uh, after a period of time where we had babysitters at home then the kids came to us uh when uh, michelle our last babysitter uh said she was moving on and uh, starting a photography business with her her husband craig and they said you know uh we don't need another babysitter we don't want to break anybody else in we just need a driver so, <laughs> so yeah they were okay so by then they were all at school by then and so uh we changed our uh, i sort of worked early my husband did the early runs and i uh, i've i did the after school but we extended the school day with sport before and after so they've of course. Uh, yeah they've all uh, represented wa in various things and a couple have represented australia and so those probably because they're made to do it all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i'm very fortunate yeah yeah they're a great crew and uh, yeah and now i've got four grandkids too it's just very special wow you know that you've um, you, you've set the bar impossibly high for for those kids. You know, to uh, medical professionals for parents. You know, what what hope did they have for disappointing you? Know, <laughs> no, the, the, the only deal is they get up in the morning and enjoy what they do. That they contribute. And I'm very fortunate they do. You know, the my only uh, one, uh, my daughter, my eldest daughter's just finished a plastic surgery training, and yeah. uh, the others are a whole, you know, uh, in various other fields, but they are. Uh, they're all contributing and living the dream, you know, so it's really good. How do you feel about that, about, you know, really closely following your footsteps? It's interesting because, you know, it's, it's some, it is very close and uh, sometimes I feel I can be really helpful and sometimes I feel like I'm just in the way. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but we are very close, all of us. And so it's, uh, we, we've all felt her, her journey along the way. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know some it, it, you know the you know, they work hard and yeah you know, her siblings have supported her along the way as well because they know what it's like because they've lived it with their, their mum and dad you know and and what what do you do to just switch off and, and chill out if if you ever get that opportunity well, I, I guess over the years I think sort of exercise and fitness has been a big part of our lives and and I think you know if you if you're fit you you you, you, you can actually function at a higher level so that that matters as well so uh you know riding my bike going in the ocean every morning exercise has been a big part of it but i think it you know it's 
interesting because my life was so focused on the kids when I wasn't working that it, as they've grown up and moved on, then I'm looking for other things to do. And so I've started go, taking lessons in making jewellery and I'm really enjoying learning new skills. Making jewellery? Yeah, wow. it's really good. And I really enjoy it because I don't think about work for four hours a week. <laughs> it's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then uh, when I go on a long bike ride, I come back and all I've been thinking about is work. And But that's great too because I, I love it. At the Fiona Wood Foundation, um, obviously, um, you know, when an established uh, foundation like that bears your name, there's probably a certain extra pressure and extra motivation for you uh, to do extraordinary things with uh, the Fiona Wood Foundation. What have you got uh, on your horizon there? What, what's your priority there? Well, it's interesting because it, it, when we first started, Marie and I, that was the McComb Foundation. And yes. uh, as Harold McComb is a great mentor of mine. And then the team changed more recently uh, as we, we're moving into our sort of the future plans. And, and Mark Fear is the scientist I work with now. And uh, We've been looking at the, the the future plans, and one of the opportunities we've got right now is with the University of Western Australia. Is to is, uh, if we can find three million dollars, then they will match that three million dollars, and we will have a professor's position in perpetuity. That means we will have a a, a professor in Burns Research forever, and that's a real key part of this whole jigsaw going forward. That can never be stopped you know that would be always there and so there, that will be an absolute cornerstone around which the the research will uh follow and be built around that so that's a really mm. ex- important piece of work that we're we're driving for because the the research foundation macomb and and then more latterly uh the fiona wood foundation has given us an opportunity for people to support us and for us to keep going consistently for over 30 years in this space, adding to the body of knowledge, putting our work out there internationally, being able to collaborate internationally and learn and uh, learn where the, the next opportunity is and driving that care, always you know, learning from today to make tomorrow better, better is really fundamentally, you know, the one thing that's kept me awake over the years is how can we pay the researchers? And it's hard. And so to have this opportunity to have one, a senior significant position sort of nailed, if you like, would is, is a really huge step forward. And as I say, I'd just like to say thank you to uh, because many people uh, in WA and beyond have supported us to this point and it's made it possible. Is it annoying or frustrating to you that you, uh, you know, as someone who is all about the science, has to spend so much of your mental energy focusing on the dollars. I'm a great optimist, and it's how you take to the table. So, to, you know, using it as the opportunity to instill the passion in science and instill the passion of, you know, of energy for positive gain, and you know, and to build the community is how I've and how I've sort of framed it in my mind, so that it, you know, people are part of our team. The people that support us are part of our team, and we can't do it without. And so yeah. when you look at it like that, then to go and to speak at rotary meetings or sporting groups or anywhere that will stay still long enough for me to talk, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it, it's, it's worthwhile because it's, uh, it's spreading the energy as well. Yeah. Well, people are going to know a lot, lot more about your story uh, from this point on, uh, Fiona, because you've got this book out uh, under her skin. What's that been like? Just just, just to finish off, what's it actually been like sitting down with someone else, in this case, Sir Matthew's the author, um, and, and bearing all? 
uh, for this in-depth look at your life. What has that been like for you to go through that process? Harrowing, excruciating, <laughs> or, but also a lot less painful than I thought uh, because I have great people around me. Poor Sue will speak to me and then uh, she ha- she's done a lot of research and has spoken to lots and lots and lots of people because I just... I I was so overwhelmed by the whole concept to begin with, and I thought, oh, I'll just go and ask them, you know, just go and ask them, <laughs> <laughs> and and so she has, you know, from the, all through uh, tracked my my journey and and put it into the context of the history at the time, and mm. so I think that's made it easier for me when I've had to read the bits, and that's like, oh, it's really quite confronting reading about yourself, but it it's it puts it in, as I say, in the context of the history at the time, makes it in my mind more interesting because it's, it's mm. there's uh, other other threads going through there and uh, I'd have to say Di who runs the foundation Di Lim has been astonishing at bullying me into doing it and my, <laughs> and, and my friend uh, uh, Claire Kuzic has been astonishing because she'd known me since we were in London together a long time ago and uh, she is a great proofreader but it, again it's all about uh, sustainability in the future the funds from the book will go to the foundation, like the royalties from the sales uh, resale go to the foundation. For me, yep. the IP is all about being able to do the research tomorrow. That's the worth of this for me. All for a good cause then, and it's a fantastic read. Oh, thank um, you. Fiona, thank you so much for giving us some insight into your life. Uh, as I say, if you want to get to much more in depth that under her skin uh, is out now so we look forward to uh, to the many more uh, achievements uh, and incredible breakthroughs that you'll no doubt make over the rest of your career thank you so much for joining us well thanks very much for your kindness tim thank you you've been listening to inspiring stories here on 882 6pr don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything we look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story you're listening to inspiring stories for barra o'day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it. Like, um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.